Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In our last episode, we looked at what the scriptures teach about humanity, including creation, death, and resurrection. I laid out somewhat of a case for conditional immortality from several important texts. Now this time, we will consider a number of challenges to this understanding, including Philippians 1.23, where it says to depart and be with Christ, 1 Corinthians 5.8, absent from the body, present with the Lord, Luke 23.43, today you will be with me in paradise, Revelation 6.9 and 10, the souls under the altar crying out. Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, and 1 Samuel 28, where it talks about the witch of Endor, who raised up the spirit of the deceased Samuel. Now, obviously, I can't go into great detail on every one of these, but I try to be somewhat thorough and go through them. I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well, so please do come on to restitutio.org and add your voice to the mix. You can check the show notes for this episode on your device or at restitutio.org so you can follow along because I do quote from a number of sources and I have it all laid out there for you. Here now is episode 165, Theology, Part 4, Challenging Conditional Immortality. Simply stated, the doctrine as I understand it, that the Bible teaches is that the dead are asleep. That is to say, they're unconscious, they're not awake. Until the resurrection, when they're brought back to life at the return of Christ. So that's the doctrine simply stated, the immortal soul. This belief derives from pagan sources. Uh, You look at uh, Plato, Socrates, the Greek philosophers, the Egyptians, the Norse, the Hindu, all of their stories about the afterlife are that you're still alive. Uh, so this is a pagan idea. It's omnicultural. Everybody else believes it. And yet, what does God say? He says uh, that the dead are asleep. All right, so as far as uh, covering some difficult texts, I want to uh, look at this article by Matt Pierman. This is an article put out by Desiring God, which is John Piper's ministry, from their website when I looked up this subject and I knew that they would disagree with our view of this, so I thought it would be a good source to see how people who hold to heaven at death or hell at death, how they think. And so, uh, Kyle, why don't you read this, uh, the front here for us. The intermediate state is a time between the death and the resurrection. Some have held that during this time we are unconscious or possibly even go out of existence. We do not think that this is biblical. The biblical evidence is that our soul continues on after death and that we remain conscious in the intermediate state while awaiting our final destiny of resurrected existence in the new heavens and new earth. First, Paul spoke of having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, Philippians 1.23. Notice, first of all, that Paul speaks of death as a departure from the body, not into temporary nothingness or unconsciousness, but to be with Christ. If we are with Christ once we have died, then we continue existing. Second, notice that Paul speaks of this state as very much better than the present state. It would be hard to say such a thing of a state of complete unconsciousness. Particularly when we consider that Paul's passion was to know Christ, it would seem that the reason the state beyond death is better than this present life is because we are with Christ and know it. If we are suddenly unconscious at death until the resurrection, wouldn't it be better to remain in this life? Because at least then we would have conscious fellowship with Christ. Dale, can you take over? Second, Paul also said that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, and that therefore he would prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. First, it is significant that he speaks of the possibility of being absent from the body. This implies that we indeed do have souls which continue existing after the body dies. Second, notice again that he speaks of this state as his preference, which indicates, as in Philippians 1.23, that we not only continue existing between death and the resurrection, but that we are aware of our existence. 
Third, even though the thief on the cross has been used to prove about every point of Christian theology, his case is still relevant here. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, comma, today you shall be with me in paradise. <laughs> the, Je- the, the Jehovah's Witnesses... New World Translation punctuates Jesus' words as, Truly I say to you, today, comma, you shall be with me in paradise, giving the impression that today refers simply to the time of Jesus' statement. But the context demands that... The, I'm sorry, I can't help but comment. But the context <laughs> demands that the today refer to when the thief on the cross would be with Jesus in paradise, because Jesus is responding to his request in the previous verse. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. The response, today you shall be with me in paradise, can in this context only be taken to me. <laughs> Not only will I remember you when I come in my kingdom, but already today you shall be with me in heaven. Right, so he, see how he, he made that move there. Uh, one more a little quickie there, Daniel. Sure. Fourth, Revelation 6-9 speaks of John seeing underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. These individuals are surely not in a state of soul sleep because in the very next verse they cry out, How long, O Lord? All right, so uh, just like I said in the Restorationist Manifesto, it's good to read uh, the argument of somebody who disagrees with you. And you have to be able to handle that and not freak out and not get too emotional (laughs) because, I mean, look, the fact is we all have a position on different subjects, right? And none of us is Christ, because if we were Christ, we'd be perfect, right? Are you Christ? No. No. Okay. So you're Dan. She's Katie Beth. We're not Christ. We're, we're trying to uh, be conformed to his image, right? But uh, in fact, we have weaknesses, flaws, and there's a lot of doctrinal deception in Christianity today. I know that. Even if I'm wrong about everything I believe, I still know there's a lot of doctrinal deception. You know why? Because there are so many different points of view on so many different issues. What this does is it shows us, if you're going to take the opposite view as what we have, what are your main texts going to be? All right? And you can see what his main texts are, right? First up, Philippians 1.23. Second up, 2 Corinthians 5.8. Third up, Luke 23.43. And then fourth, Revelation 6.9. So this provides for us an outline of scriptures to look at together. Isn't that very kind of him to offer that to us? And so we'll just kind of cruise through these. Now, as far as I understand it, when you're dead, it's like uh, anesthesia. It's like being knocked out. You're not aware of what's going on. And so you don't have a perception of time as a result of that. So there's the subjective and the objective experience. The subjective experience is the experience of the person, him or herself. The objective experience is what actually happens, like if you were a video camera recording it. From the objective perspective, if someone dies today and Jesus comes back in the year 3025, okay, that person has been dead for how long? 1,008 years or seven years, right? Now, from the perspective of that person, they're not awake when they're dead. They're unconscious. So for them, how long have they been dead? Split second. A split second. So from the so the, I think it's important to recognize the difference between the objective and the subjective perspective. From the perspective of the person who dies, you die the next moment Jesus comes back. You die the next moment you are with Christ. Mm-hmm. Now on earth, how many years have passed? However many years until Christ comes back to bring about the resurrection. So I think that is very, a very help, and he does not interact with that at all. He's not doing a very good job of seeing what it is the other side believes. He's just saying, well, here are my proof texts, and it can't, you can't be right because of these proof texts. Now, once again, Philippians 1.23 says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. What is Paul doing here? He's just skipping over the intermediate state. He's just skipping over it. Because you know why? He doesn't experience it. If you don't experience something, you can skip it over, right? We don't have this technology yet, but all the movies about space travel, they always have cryostasis, where you freeze people, you put them to sleep, or I don't know how it works. You go in like a pod. And you're in there for like years, but then when the spaceship finally gets to the planet, you get reanimated, and it's just like a moment for you. 
but it's been years. Otherwise, you grow old and you die. There was a there was a movie I saw not too long ago about that. It had somebody famous it's, in it. Uh, Passenger, Chris Pratt. Yeah, Chris Pratt. It was a good movie. I like. Did you guys see that? It was. It had some parts in it that weren't my favorite. Yeah. That's the way Planet of the Apes is. Oh yeah, Planet of the Apes. Because yeah, it's active. No, spoiler. Yeah, it's past. It's the future. I hope everyone's. It, that is still looking at the same point here. From the perspective of all those people that didn't wake up, it was like this. These guys woke up, lived their entire lives, planted that tree, did whatever they did, and died. And then everyone else woke up. So you, a whole lifetime happened while you were asleep. It's a good, it's a good way, uh, analogy to think with. So Paul's just skipping over the fact that there is this period. He doesn't know how long it is. He probably doesn't think it's going to be that long anyhow. And he's like, depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So I think that's an adequate explanation for this verse. We look at 2 Corinthians 5, 8. It says, so we are of good courage. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 6. So we are of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So people say, like this uh, Mr. Perman here, he's talking about the, absent, the possibility of being absent from the body. This implies that we indeed do have souls which continue existing after the body dies. So even though this verse doesn't say we have souls that exist once the body dies, that's what he's understanding this to be teaching. But I don't think that's what this is teaching at all. And I'd just like to read you the context here. Look at verse 1. Well, maybe Katie Beth can read us the context. Can you read us 1 to 10? Well, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so going back to the beginning here, in verse 1, he says that we have a building from God. You see that? A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So there's, a lot of this is, like uh, Stefan was saying, is, is metaphorical. Okay, so there's not actually a house made out of pine two-by-fours and sand shingles in heaven. Okay, but just imagine for a moment that there is a house in heaven. The house refers to something. I think it's referring to resurrection bodies, but we'll see in a second here. And, I, I, and I'm not saying like God has like all these bodies like all ready to go like in a hangar somewhere and he'll just like drop them down. No, I, like you're getting too literal, all right? The idea is that God has this thing prepared. A lot of times in the Bible, when it talks about something in this future, it says that it's in heaven. And what it means by that is that it's in God's plans, not necessarily a physical thing in heaven, but that's a separate subject. All right, so verse 1, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with a hand. So you have two things. You have the tent, and it's representing our earthly home, which is like your body, I suppose. Right, And then you have this house. The difference between a tent and a house. tent is uh, temporary. A house is permanent. The tent is on earth. The body is currently in heaven. Verse 2, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So long as we're in our current physical body, we are groaning. We have issues. We get hungry. We get sick. We die. We got problems. Right? We get pimples. Dan broke his leg when he's trying to run a marathon because he tripped on a sidewalk, you know? I mean, we have problems. What he's saying is like we're groaning in this tent, but 
we're, we're longing, and notice what he says. He's, we're not longing to get rid of a place to live. We're not longing to become a airy spirit floating through the air. No, we're longing for more clothing to be put on a heavenly dwelling, to, to put on like clothing, a he- he- heavenly dwelling. Verse 3, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Naked would be a disembodied soul, which is what Mr. Perman is advocating. But that's, that's what he says he doesn't want. He doesn't want to be naked. He, you don't want to be without a body. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that this mortal may be swallowed up by life. So the whole thing is figurative language, and what he's talking about is that we would receive our resurrected bodies, that our current bodies would be upgraded, just like a tent would be upgraded to a house, our current bodies, which are temporary, would be upgraded to resurrection bodies, which don't die and don't corrupt, get corrupted or perish. If you read those first four verses before you get to verse eight, it's like, it's a lot less difficult. If you just read verse eight, or even just that little tiny part of verse eight, it's just like, absent from the body, hold with the Lord. All right, so that means I die, my spirit dis- disappears, and it goes to be with Jesus. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, I don't want to be naked. He's looking forward to the resurrection. So uh, let's, let's run it forward. Verse 5, he who is prepares for this is God, and his spirit is a guarantee. Verse uh, 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Why is that? Well, that's because the Lord is in heaven right now. The Lord is going to return to the earth, but right now he's in heaven. We also know that as soon as the Lord returns, we will be changed. Remember that verse? Somebody tell me where that is. 1 Corinthians 15. Well, that's not really what I was talking about. I was thinking of the other one. 1 Thessalonians 4. Yes. I was um, thinking of the first something. It was, I knew it was a T book. <laughs> the Lord himself will descend with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So th- this one actually doesn't say will be changed. But... Um, it is true that if you're alive when Jesus comes back, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So yeah, this is the first one you mentioned is the correct one. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, same kind of language, must put on imperishable. This is just how he talks about it. This mortal body must put on immortality. Uh, and so it's not talking about escaping from your body. It's talking about your body putting on these other characteristics that will help it survive forever. So then verse 6, while we're in the body, we're away from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage that we'd rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. Yeah, we, we would rather be with Jesus right now, wouldn't we? Who wouldn't want to be with Jesus? Does that mean that that's what's going to happen when you die? No. There's, there's a dozen other scriptures from the same man, the Apostle Paul, that calls death sleep over and over again. Not, in, not only in um, you know, this book, 1 Corinthians, but you see it, you see it in 1 Thessalonians. You see it all, all throughout. I mean, it's just, it's just the standard biblical way to talk about dead people is that they're unconscious. They're asleep. They're, un, they're not awake. <laughs> I feel like I have to say not awake. Uh, all right, and then you have verse 9, so we'd rather... Whether we're at home or away, you can see he's like speculating in verse 8. And then verse 9 is like, yeah, wherever we are, our aim is to please him. That's just a little bit on that. Now, we talked about the thief on the cross with the whole comma business. I don't understand why he says what he says here. Maybe I'm just thick and I don't get it. But he says the context demands that changing the comma doesn't make sense. I, I believe exactly the opposite. That the com- context makes a lot more sense if you change the comma, because his question was, remember me when you come into your kingdom. His question was a future question. When you come into your kingdom. So that's like a future event. He's on a cross right now. He's not getting his kingdom today. So when you come into your kingdom, remember me. His, his question is about the future. And then Jesus comes back with, today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. So he's like, I don't have to wait till the kingdom to remember you. I'm telling you right now, today, you will be with me in paradise. So for me, this is not, honestly, not even a difficult verse, but he is arguing the opposite point here 
I'd like to see him make a few more comments on this so I can understand why he thinks this is so obvious. And you see the, uh, the tactic, too, of lumping conditional immortality people in with the um, Jehovah's Witnesses. He said, like, Christians in general consider Jehovah's Witnesses to be, like, the, the most uh, ridiculous, uh, absurd group out there. Right, so uh, they just kind of lump in. But there are a lot of other non-Jehovah's Witnesses that believe in conditional immortality. There's even a lot of evangelicals. Uh, one of the main recommended books on your syllabus is by Warren Prestige, a Baptist conditional immortality person. Uh, you've got the Rethinking Hell people. A lot of them are Calvinists, uh, and they believe in conditional immortality. You have the entire denomination, I think millions and millions of them, Seventh-day Adventists. Then you have the Advent Christian Church. You've got the Church of God. You've got my group, Living Hope. I mean, you've got lots, lots of uh, groups out there that believe in conditional immortality. Then the last one he has here is Revelation 6, 9, which uh, has the souls of those who have been slain because of the Word of God. Uh, the whole text reads as follows. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? A literal interpretation here is very problematic, uh, and it results in absurdity. Because if you're going to interpret these literally that there's literal souls living under a table in heaven and they're like crying out they're like awake but they're like not having a good time obviously how long you know like how long is this and then in verse 11 each soul gets a white robe so like how does a soul wear a white robe uh and they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants, their brothers, should be complete, who were killed as they themselves have been. So, I mean, this is a vision. I, I don't doubt that John saw this. I just doubt that we should interpret it as a current, literal reality in heaven. The, the point is, people have been killed as martyrs, and they're going to rest until other martyrs are also killed. And then the end will come. So, I mean, it serves, it serves a role in Revelation. Honestly, look, look at how he frames this. He says, Fourth, Revelation 6, 9 speaks of John seeing underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain from the word of God. These individuals are surely not in a state of soul sleep because in the next verse they cry out, How long? He's taking it all as literal historical reportage. This is not historical reportage. Read Revelation yourself. It's a vision. From chapter 4 onwards, it's a vision. Starts with the throne room of God, then the Lamb comes in in chapter 5. This is chapter 6, the introduction of the seven seals. And then you have the seven trumpets, then you have the seven bowls of wrath. I mean, it's a vision. All right, any questions, comments, thoughts, criticisms on those? I guess these would be like the big four. Isn't there the, uh, I mean, like the blood cries out? Very good, very good. Yeah, that's Genesis uh, yeah, 4. Yeah, that's uh, Abel, yep. The there it is. The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So does blood cry? Of course not. But what does it mean? It's a metaphorical way of saying this blood demands vengeance, demands retribution. This crime that you've committed requires it. And then it says that the ground has opened its mouth, right? Well, ground doesn't have an amount. We're talking about somebody that gets killed and their blood leaks out onto the ground, and the ground absorbs it, soaks it up. But yet the language we see here is, it, you know, blood's crying out. Like, if you got close to the, the blood with a tape recorder, would you, would you hear anything? No, you wouldn't, because it's not literally crying out. You know, you're just being uh, too literal on it. And in Hebrews, it says that it testifies, actually, right? Is that what it says there? Hebrews 12, 24? It doesn't say Jesus' blood it speaks a better word. Yeah. Yeah, to Jesus, the meteor of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Jesus' blood speaks too. Yeah. Look at that. A lot of this is cultural differences between the biblical culture and our culture, and then we're misreading it because we're just like, all right, we live in a scientific age, so everything has to be exact, precise, taken literally. Now we're on to the more fun subject. 
of the rich man of Lazarus. So I've got here for you a little uh, commentary. It's 10 pages. Let's take a look at this. Now, some people will bring this, this scripture up when we're talking about the subject of hell because they think this describes hell where the rich man is tormented in flame. You can see why people would, you know, from where we sit, where they would get that from. Uh, but as many scholars have pointed out, this refers to the intermediate state, the rich man of Lazarus. It's not talking about what happens in the final judgment, which we talked about last time. This is talking about what happens immediately upon death. If it's talking about anything related to that, it's, it's immediately upon death. So let's get rolling. Who's, uh, who's going to read for us? Uh, Dan, could you read us the page three of the parable there? Yeah. Yeah. Now there was a rich man, and he was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, Ooh. joyfully living in wonder every day. Uh, and a poor man named Lazarus was laying at his gate, covered with sores, mm. and longing to be fed with the crumbs which fall from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his <coughs> And he cried out, said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted, that, comforted here, uh, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that uh, those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able to, not, will not be able. And that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you may send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham's bosom. What do you think that means? <laughs> You could probably explain that. It's probably like a Hebrew-ism. It, yeah, it's just an expression that means your side. Your side, yeah. It's like at your side, chilling out. All right, so let's, let's just kind of cruise through this little article slash commentary. But what I did in this, by the way, is I, I quoted a lot of other people that have, have come before me. I was talking to David Krogh about this earlier. I mean, this class w would have been much more difficult a uh, hundred years ago, but we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. And so many people have done so, so much good work, both within the Church of God and Bible scholars in general, over the last hundred years, that so many of these things are, are just not, once you see it, it's just not difficult. Let me just give you my one sentence summary explaining this whole thing. It's a story. The point of the story is to give to the poor. Jesus told a fictitious story to convince people to give to the poor. That's what's going on here. This is not a geographical survey of the afterlife. It's a story designed to get you to give to the poor. But let's go through it bit by bit and, and take it apart and put it back together and see if we can't really understand it from the inside and from out. Some people say this is not a parable. This is actual, an actual story about somebody because it says a certain man. But in the previous parable, in the same chapter, the parable of the unjust steward, that one also uh, starts in the same way. And everyone recognizes that that's a parable. Just so you know, Luke 15, 16, it's the parable section of Luke. So Luke 15, it begins the parable, lost sheep, lost coin, 
prodigal son, lost son, right? And then that's chapter 15. We go to chapter 16. It's money, money, money. Uh, the first one is the unjust steward. You remember that one? Well, we'll get to it later. But it's like one of these really strange parables where Jesus is like complimenting somebody that is not being honest. <laughs> and uh, we'll see how that plays out. And then you have this rich man and Lazarus parable. So, all right. Number two point is that uh, some people say this is not a parable because it never says it's a parable. But 11 out of the 26 parables in Luke's gospel also don't self-identify as parables. So that's not a good argument. A third argument that people make for why this is uh, history and not a parable is that it names one of the characters, Lazarus. But if you understand that the word Lazarus means God has helped, then this, this is, becomes a very ironic name because in his life, Lazarus does not seem to be helped at all. He seems to get the short end of the stick. He's poor. He's miserable. He's got open wounds. He's not treated well. And then he dies. Right? But then God does help him. So it's like the perfect name for a made-up person in the, in the, the story here. Uh, can you see the word Ezra in there? Lazarus? Right? There's helped. Yeah. It's my son's name. Anyhow. All right. Next page. Page four. Here are some observations right from that Rest of Scriptures book that you've been lugging around. Let's cruise through the points that Rest of Scriptures makes here. Josiah, read us through 1 through 10 here about why we know this is a parable. No mention is made of either heaven or hell. Interesting. No mention is made of souls. If taken literally of someone's soul going off to Abraham's bosom, there's a problem because the passage speaks of bodies, not disembodied souls. Body parts mentioned include eyes, the tips of a finger, and the tongue. If souls are immaterial, then how can they be carried by the angels? If there is a great chasm or gold fix between Abraham's bosom and Hades, how is that they can see across it and converse with each other effortlessly? Just imagine living forever with an earshot of an agonizing screams of the torture. <laughs> Would that not be torture itself? If taken literally, then we have a contradiction in Hebrews 11, 8, 13, and 39 through 40. Because there it says that Abraham has not yet received his reward. Mm. Note that Hebrews was written decades after Jesus took this parable. If one is being tormented in flames of fire, would he ask for just a drop of water? If the righteous dead go to Abraham's bosom at death, then what about those who died before Abraham? Did Noah go to Abraham's bosom <laughs> at death? Right, so, I mean, if you take this as a literal story of what happened to this guy and that this is supposed to be describing what happens to any of the faithful and the wicked, then you end up with these logical problems, these uh, what we might call absurdities that result. I don't think any of these are insurmountable. I mean, if you're really dedicated to defending this as an account of the afterlife, you could probably come up with responses to any of these points here. But, I don't know, I think 10 is a, is, a, is a good number of reasons to take this as a parable. But it gets better. Just wait. If one takes into account the fact that the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable, these problems all go away. So this is a quote from Edward Fudge. Edward Fudge sadly just died, but uh, he was really the patriarch of conditionalism in America, in the 20th century at least. There, were, there, were, there was quite a movement in the 1800s. Uh, of which this college is, uh, you know, looks back to that uh, Adventist movement. But uh, in the 20th century, Edward Fudge really did carry the torch for uh, conditionalism, the idea that dead people are asleep. H have any of you seen that movie? Did I force you to watch that movie in my, one of my classes? No? Should have. What movie? Hell and Mr. Fudge. Excellent. Very good. Usually Christian movies are like, You saw it, right? Oh my goodness, I failed you. Oh, I know, I know. The problem is I can't remember what I've done and what I haven't done, and I, I fear that I'm just repeating myself, but I don't know if I am or not. It's a, the curse of uh, being a teacher. What is that, that you, you, you said that this, is a, that this is a false parable that Jesus It's a fiction. Money it's a fiction. He made it up, just like the sower and the seed or the, the prodigal son. There was never any such person. He just made it up. 
Okay, now wouldn't that be considered? I'm gonna go on the stretch out here on a limb. Wouldn't that be considered a lie? No, man. You tell a story to tell a point. Like That's how Jesus taught. He would make up stories, and he said, a sower went out to sow. He's not... Yeah, you tell a story, and the story... Everybody knows it's a story. Now, if he's telling a story and people think it's real, then he's deceiving them, right? But my point here is that people would recognize this as a story. All right, let's look at this, what Edward Fudge says. Few serious interpreters attempt to make the details of the story literal. To do so would require us to imagine the saved and lost conversing with each other after death in full view of each other and at close range. We also would have to think of literal tongues that burn with literal fire and literal water that does not cool them, not to mention physical bodies that can be tortured by fire but which somehow do not burn up. So uh, that's his point again in his book, Two Views of Hell, which uh, I caught Bob Jones reading today. This, this very book um, in his office there, he was highlighting it. He's doing some sort of class for people visiting. Do you know what that is? Louisiana and Arkansas are coming down for a block class. Yeah. yeah. Basic Bible doctrines, I think. Yeah. So Bob's going to use this textbook for part of that class. All right. Then the other quote I have here is from Warren Prestige, Life, Death, and Destiny. He says, first of all, there's no doubt that this is a parable, not a report of actual events. It begins the same way many parables do. There was a rich man. Look at uh, chapter 16, verse 1, chapter 15, verse 11, chapter 14, verse 16. As with any parable, then, it is essential to distinguish between what it says and what it teaches. For example, the parable in the first half of Luke 16 speaks of a steward cheating his master and says good on him. But Jesus is not teaching that we should cheat our bosses. What he's teaching is that we should give to the poor in view of God's coming judgment. That also is what the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is teaching. It is simply a vehicle for his teaching. And I encourage you, we're not have, we won't have the time to do this here, but I encourage you to read all of Luke 16. And if you read all of the whole chapter, you'll see that the two parables work right together. They sort of like depend on each other. Just like in chapter 15, you had the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. All three kind of go together. In Luke 16, the two go to fit together very nicely as well. All right, so uh, that's my point on it being a parable. Look at page five. I kind of use this analogy about movies. Like if I made a reference to the Trinity from The Matrix, you know what I'm talking about? What do you see in your mind right now? A woman. A woman? How is she dressed? Uh, leather. Isn't it? What color leather? Black. Black leather. Yeah. What else? What color is her hair? Is it blonde or brunette? Brunette. Okay, what else do you know? Short hair and... Is she fat or skinny? Skinny. Does she have ninja skills? Yes. Right. So, and she can fly a helicopter? I mean, like, you know all this stuff. I just said Trinity from The Matrix, and all of that just popped into his head. Right. Because he's got good taste in movies, obviously. <laughs> um, and imagine somebody a thousand years from now, and they're listening to this or a transcription of this, and they're like, Trinity from Matrix. Okay. A matrix is a grouping of numbers. You learn matrices in, in math, in, in school, hopefully, where you have like a grouping of numbers and they're in a matrix and there's matrix math. And then Trinity is this curious Christian idea of three and one, one and three. So you can easily think that I'm talking about the doctrine of the Trinity and mathematics. And I'm talking about a skinny ninja woman in black leather. Why did you misunderstand me? Because you didn't see the movie. Now, if you saw the movie, then you'd be like, oh, yeah, Trinity. That's <laughs> talking about this girl. She saves Neo, or she, she gets Neo in the beginning of it, yada, yada, yada. You know, she drives the motorcycle. She drives the helicopter. She dies. He saves, spoiler, he saves her, right, from the bullet that hit you. Do you ever see I it? Not oh, it. my goodness. I just ruined not it for you. Much have. This story about the rich man and Lazarus, is a story that was in their culture. Jesus is tapping into it. Just like I can do if I refer to a movie that you've seen, I can tap right in and evoke a sense of expectation. Now, if, it's, if I was telling a story about the Trinity from the movie, the girl Trinity from the movie, and I suddenly said, and then she put on a white sweater, I've just violated your expectations. Because you know she always wears black and it's always leather or pleather, whatever it was, plastic, I don't know what it was. But um, 
if I have her putting on a white sweater in your mind, you're like, whoa, you've just... Vi-. So that's what Jesus does here. He taps into a story that they already all knew, and then he does something interesting when he twists it at the end. And so that's, that's what's going on here. Look at, look at some of these uh, reputable resources that are making the same point I just made. The New Bible Dictionary says in Luke 16:23, it is the place of torment for the wicked after death in accordance with some contemporary Jewish thinking. It is doubtful whether this parabolic use of the current ideas can be treated as teaching about the state of the dead. I mean, that's as good as it gets when it comes to a Bible dictionary. Edward Fudge, once again, page five. Stefan, can you give us that middle one there? The part of the parable, the reversal of earthly fortunes after death was familiar in popular Palestinian <laughs> stories of Jesus' time. Hugo Grossman cites a Greek parallel from a first century Egyptian papyrus. papyrus. Mm-hmm. And he says there are at least seven versions of the story in Jewish literature. One of the most famous involves a poor student of the law and a rich politician named Bar Major. There are differences between these stories and Jesus, of course, and therein lies the Lord's uniqueness, but basic plot was well-known folklore. folklore. All right, so I don't know how much of that you guys picked up or not, but uh, basically it's saying there were stories floating around. This was part of their folklore. You have two people. The uh, earliest forms of it come from Egypt. Let's go to the next page. You'll see it there. This is Joachim Jeremias, a German scholar uh, who wrote in the 60s on this stuff, a very reputable scholar. He says, to understand the parable in detail and as a whole, we have to recognize that the first part derives from the well-known folk material concerned with the reversal of fortune in the afterlife. This is the Egyptian folktale of the journey of Cyrus and his father Setme, Kamois, to the underworld. It ends with the words, he who has been good on earth will be blessed in the kingdom of the dead, and he who has been evil on earth will suffer in the kingdom of the dead. Alexandrian Jews brought this story to Palestine, where it became very popular as the story of the poor scholar and the rich tax collector, Bar Majan. That must be Mayan, because there's no J in Hebrew. So the rich man of Lazarus is a parable, not a literal story. Furthermore, it's a story that is very similar in its first half to other stories that were already around in the culture at the time. Jesus starts the story in the familiar way, but then adds a twist halfway through once he has his hearer's interest. And so on. So uh, let's go to page seven. You've got the rich man. He's dressed in purple. And down in verse 22, you see the poor man died. He was carried away. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, Page eight, the first question. Then you have the second question. The first question is, can I get some water to cool off my tongue? You know, it's interesting, too. Look at verse 24 there. It says, can you send Lazarus? This rich man is still trying to order Lazarus around. Like, he's in the afterlife, he's in flame, he's in agony, and he's like, Abraham, can you send Lazarus over? <laughs> he's trying to, like, still order people around. Like, come on. He hasn't, still hasn't changed. Yeah, he hasn't, he hasn't changed, changed. And then Abraham says, look, child, you had good things, he had bad things, now he has good things, you have bad things. This is a classic uh, reversal of fortunes kind of thing that we see in the teaching of Jesus, but that would be contrary to standard Jewish opinion where the rich are blessed and the poor are cursed. So Jesus is twisting things. He's, he's, he's switching it to the opposite. I'll give you one example of this. In, in John 9, they pass a blind man and they say to Jesus, who sent? This guy or his parents that he was born blind? So they just assume if somebody has something wrong with them, that's because of sin. You know what I mean? And Jesus is like, what are you, what are you talking about? You know, neither <laughs> is what he says. He doesn't really answer the question. He says just so that the, what does he say? So that the Son of God may glorified or whatever, you know, and then he heals the guy. So uh, Jesus is, is defying their, their expectations and using this uh, parable to do that. And then in uh, the, the second question there on page eight, the guy asks, well, can, can you at least send somebody to my brother's? And this foreshadows later Jewish rejection of Jesus. 
because even if somebody raises from the dead, they're still not going to believe them, right? That's what uh, Abraham says in the parable. So Jesus is sort of like, I mean, this is really brilliant if you think about it. I mean, he's sort of like priming the pump for these Pharisees to not be so antagonistic towards him because he's portrayed this sort of disbelief in a very negative light in this story when he's discussing with them during, during his ministry. Um, all right, so then it finally ends. Um, and what's this, what's this quote by Ralph Wilson? Ralph Wilson is, uh, I don't know, some sort of like guy that wrote a, a website called Jesus Walk. And he, he says a lot of good stuff here, which uh, we don't have time to get into. But you can, you can get into it on your own if you, if you want. Um, let's look on the last page there, page 10. Like I said, we're just kind of skipping through here. Uh, Kyle, could you read that on the end of page 9 there? All righty. No, Jesus is not endorsing the story's paraphernalia. He's using it simply to meet his opponents, the Pharisees, on their own ground, using a story familiar to them in order to convict them out of their own mouths, as it were, for their indifference to the poor and perhaps to sinners and even Gentiles in general. All that he actually endorses here is Moses and the prophets. It was not the intention of Jesus to give a topographical guide to the underworld. He does not intend here to give a preview of life after death. On this, almost all commentators agree. We should not allow ourselves to get distracted with theological discussions about life after death when it comes to this parable. We need to understand not just what the parable isn't saying, but also what it is saying. David Smith summarizes the point of the parable well. Daniel, could you read that? The purpose of the parable. The purpose of the parable is not to condemn riches and exalt poverty in the spirit of Ebionitic, the Ebionites' asceticism. Uh, in other words, the parable is not saying that poverty is a virtue. It is an enlargement of the Lord's admonition in verse 9 to make to yourselves friends by means of the mammon of righteousness. Unrighteousness. Of unrighteousness. Uh, that when it shall fail, they may receive you into the, into the eternal tabernacle. The merit of Lazarus was not that he was poor, but that he had found his help in God. The offense of the rich man was not that he was rich, but that he lived a self-indulgent and luxurious life, regardless of the misery around him. Had he made friends to himself of Lazarus and others like him by means of his mammon of unrighteousness, he would have had a place and a welcome among them when he entered the unseen world. Let us take Jesus' parable to heart. If we have money, let's open our eyes to see our Lazarus at the gate. If we don't have money, there are still many things we can do for the poor. Somebody had to put Lazarus at the gate of the rich man, after all. This issue will not go away. The poor, Jesus said, you will have with you always, until Jesus comes and makes things right on earth as in heaven. But that should in no way discourage us from carrying out compassionate acts of love toward the afflicted, in this age. So Jesus, if you read all of Luke 16, you'll see this. He's teaching that we need to be um, generous to the poor, that we need to care for people that are in need. And uh, the uh, only, only last text that I would really uh, bring up here on this subject of uh, the intermediate state is the Witch of Endor. And that's a juicy one. So it's sad that we don't have time for it. But I'll, I'll just summarize ever so briefly. There are only two options. Did, and I, I'm, I'm just hoping you remember what happened there in wherever it was, uh, 1 Samuel 28. Uh, did the medium really call up Samuel from the dead? Yes or no? If she, if she did, then that means she has the power to wake the dead. Mm. That's impressive. Or that demons have the power to wake up the dead. Or that God has a power to wake up the dead and endorsed her seance so that it actually worked. Okay, so those are the three options if Samuel was actually called up from the dead. Or the answer is no. She didn't really call up Samuel from the dead. In that case, she's faking it. She could have faked the whole thing. He never saw it. Saul never saw anything. She's just saying, I see Samuel coming up from the dead. She could have faked the whole thing. She, Unlikely, I think, because of the prophecy Samuel makes about Saul dying in battle. And he seems kind of surprised that it worked. Well, you can fake surprise. Yeah, I mean, especially if, you're, especially if you're good at it, you know. But then, um, number two, the evil spirit spoke through her. So this is the idea of a familiar spirit 
that there was actually a demon that was familiar with Samuel, with the situation that had happened, and that that demon is at work in this woman impersonating Samuel. Or that, number three, Samuel never got up from the dead, but God gave her a deceptive vision so that she thought she saw you know, he, she really did see it, but it didn't actually happen. It's a vision. That's what a vision is. Um, so those are six possible options, all of which allow for the dead to be asleep normally and for this thing to, to make some sort of sense. Uh, I'm sorry that I don't have more time to get into the nitty-gritty on that one with you, but I just wanted to mention it. Anybody have a... Well, I mean, one verse does not make a doctrine. Right. One verse does not make a doctrine. So... Uh, I would say that uh, if this one intrigues you, maybe you should do your research paper on it. You know, obviously I'm not going to cover every every verse that could possibly be difficult. All right, we're going to end this here. You can see that you, you can hear at this point, those of you who have been listening to the previous episodes in this series, you can hear that this is actually a different set of students and, in fact, a different year where I'm teaching this class but I thought it would weave together well with the other class and really combine together into a much more comprehensive theology class for you. So whereas in the previous lecture, the, the topic was just simply conditional immortality and, and a positive case, in this one, it's what are the difficult verses that people like to bring up on the subject? And so it is, as we go forward with this class, we're going to look at a number of other doctrines and uh, for some of them, I will have these bonus episodes like this one where we will get much more in-depth with discussing verses that are sometimes confusing. If I was going to recommend one quick, easy-to-read book on this subject, it would be Warren Prestige's Life, Death, and Destiny, which you can get on afterlife.co.nz or on Amazon. And it's a Baptist pastor in New Zealand who lays out the case just so beautifully for a number of these texts, and really explains it so simply that anyone can understand. Another source I mentioned in this episode was the movie Hell and Mr. Fudge, which is just, you just got to watch it. I, I mean, I don't know what else to say, but there's a website dedicated to that, hellandmrfudge.org, no dot after Mr., uh, just one word, hellandmrfudge.org, where you can watch a trailer and hopefully either rent or buy that. Also, I put a link to the Rich Man and Lazarus commentary I did. I mean, it's not really a commentary. It's more like a long article or a short commentary, but I think it's, it's helpful because it pulls in some of these sources that we went through in this episode. So if you want to get that by itself, I have a link to that in the show notes to this episode, which then you can share with others when the subject inevitably comes up, Luke chapter 16, right? So thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.